1: Welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm your host, Joe Haddo, and as ever, thanks for joining us. You are all very welcome. As always, I'm joined by two fabulous authors who will be going head-to-head in a war of the words a little later on in our Book Off. They are the internationally best-selling author and screenwriter who is here to tell us about her latest novel, The Pull of the Stars, Emma Donahue. Hello and welcome to you.
2: Hi, nice to be on Book Off.
1: It's great to have you, Emma. Um, And also joining us, a poet, author and short story writer who's just published his fourth novel, The Innocents. Michael Crummy, hello. Hi,
3: nice to be with you.
1: Uh, Thank you both for joining us. It's lovely to be chatting. And um, in Canadian terms, are you sort of (laughs) neighbours?
2: Definitely friends, but not next door neighbours, no. I think we're half an hour apart, aren't we, uh, in time zone terms? Uh,
3: well, hour and a half, I think, Emma.
2: Oh, you're right. So That's... Sorry, I was concentrating on the half an hour because it's such a novelty. I completely forgot about the whole <laughs> hour as
3: well. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. No, Newfoundland, I, I'm actually closer to Ireland here in Newfoundland than I am to
1: Toronto, for example. So. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. You see, the, a country that has different time zones... And also, can be closer to 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 Ireland than it can to another place in its own country. It's amazing, isn't it?
2: I'm jealous now. I want to be closer to Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome here anytime. At least I wouldn't have to be quarantined there. <laughs>
1: That's right. You two know each other from from doing events, and perhaps you've sort of been in the same touring circles in Canada. Is that how you first met?
3: Well, actually. No, we've, I, we've met years and years ago. We actually watched the Oscars together about, it's almost it's 25 years ago now or more, I'd say. Um, at, I was at a conference that, Emma, it was a friend of yours had organized on the yeah, hand?
2: That's right, they had an Oscar party every year. Yeah. yeah.
3: And uh, But then we barely crossed paths again until this year, really, which is strange because it's such a small a small world here in Canada, the publishing world. But we did, and we shared a cab to the airport in Vancouver last fall. And we've done a couple of And events. I was
2: really afraid I'd given you, I had a terrible cold and you were going on to prize galas. And I had a dreadful fear that I'd spread my germs on you. This was all pre-COVID. I was right. afraid I'd given you an ordinary bad cold.
1: <laughs> but it all worked out. Which is the one thing you don't want as an author before you're about to embark on a tour, is it? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah it's kind of endemic to that whole touring thing is somebody comes down with something and it just just gets yeah. passed around
1: so <laughs> so for any new listeners uh, that are joining us michael and emma will be going head to head a little later on pitching as a book that they love and that they think we should all read but they only have three minutes in which to convince us so we'll come to that a bit later firstly i want to talk about Both of your latest novels. I've got them sat here in front of me, and I have to say, side by side, they look magnificent because, wow, these front covers are gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. I'm talking about The Pull of the Stars, Emma, and The Innocents, Michael. Emma, if I could come to you first. This book was published earlier in the year, and although it's set in 1918, part of the story has a strange resemblance to the current pandemic, doesn't it?
2: And that's pure fluke because um I finished the novel completely um at the beginning of March this year having, you know, sold it last year and it was meant to be published in 2021 and I delivered it and honestly no similarity to today had occurred to me. I was just so absorbed in the book and then my publisher said, "Um it's about a pandemic. Do you think maybe we should bring it out this year?" <laughs> <laughs> so um I felt a little sheepish it's not like I was trying to comment about the events of today and I didn't do anything to change it it just has a lot of similarities because not only is any story of uh, a pandemic in a sort of busy modern world going to sound like any other but also um, my novel focuses on uh, the the inner city Dublin slums and where the, the patients of my nurse protagonist Julia Power come from and of course you know, she's drawing all sorts of conclusions from looking at their lives and seeing that they were they were beaten down long before the flu ever caught them. You know that pandemics are not equalizing; pandemics hit hard those who we have chosen to keep down already. So all those questions of social justice and healthcare came up in the book, and then reading headlines the last few months, I, it's all felt so eerily reminiscent of that pandemic to me.
1: Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it that that the sort of that it can be almost a hundred years apart as in the story that you're writing and and where we are now and yet there's so much resonance and it is do do you think the the decision to sort of publish it this year rather than wait till next was because of that or just because we we literally don't know where we're going to be in the world in 2021 so it was sort of better to, to to get this story out now
2: well, back in March, they were not certain people would be buying any books at all in July. I remember my British publisher saying, we're not sure we can get it printed in time. You know, literally, will the printers be open? So I think they just felt it would be part of the conversation this year. Whereas certainly I feel by next year, people will be so entirely sick of pandemic stories that nobody would touch it. So I think it made sense. But it, it was starting to me because, you know, in, in literary fiction, we're used to our books taking at least a year, sometimes two. So it was it was, it was amazing me that they were able to bring it out this fast and i certainly wasn't expecting to be you know virtual touring from home though it does have some advantages over the traveling kind you know it's far less physically arduous and you get to reach people all over the world
1: in fact just before we started recording michael and i were saying just that you know although it's lovely to see your readers you know and be able to to meet them and sign books and things actually doing the virtual stuff means that anyone in the world can join you (laughs) so that's quite nice yeah I've
2: had readers write to me and say I never usually get to these events and now I can you know they're supplied to me online for free it's amazing
1: yeah 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 so there are some positives (laughs) yeah I wonder
3: how much of this will continue on actually after after we get back to something
1: like normal life I think some of this will continue and yeah because people have got used to it and realized they quite enjoy it as well for
2: instance online theatre i would have thought that was a contradiction in terms but i've so enjoyed watching some plays online filmed really well so i think that'll definitely be a you know a new cultural habit for me as well as my rushing off to see live theatre as soon as i can yes
1: well of course something like you know nt live which is the cinema broadcasts of the national theatre uh, in london they were very popular anyway but now having sort of transferred them to the small screen so that people can enjoy theater from their homes it's been a you know a real success and i think so many of us you know like like you emma and me who love theater have been really grateful for it
2: yeah nt live was my gateway drug actually um i watched their <laughs> production of one man two governors back in mid-march and it was the first time i relaxed and laughed since covid
1: You <laughs> know. yes we all need something like that don't we <laughs> um michael if i could ask you about uh, the Innocents, which is your latest novel um which I think was inspired by a story you found in a local archive, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, just about everything I've ever written has been historical to one extent or another. So I spend a lot of time at the provincial archives at the rooms here in St. John's. And uh, I usually go in to research something specific, but I'm always, I always take some time just to poke around, because there are tens of thousands of fragments of amazing stories in there. And I almost always find something I want to use and uh, about it's almost 10 years ago now I guess um, I was in researching a particular project and I happened on I, I can't remember honestly if it was in a newspaper or a journal but it was a an account of a clergyman traveling around Newfoundland so this was way back this would be a couple of hundred years ago when most Newfoundland communities were too small to have their own church so the clergy traveled And this clergyman, in the the course of those travels, happened on an orphan brother and sister, a young brother and sister, in in an isolated cove on the northern coast of Newfoundland. And he quickly sussed out that the sister was pregnant and automatically assumed, and I'm sure he was right to do this, that the brother was the father of that child. And that was really it. There was no other information about how long they had been orphaned for, what happened to them afterwards. But I knew as soon as I read that, that there was, that there was a novel in those circumstances. That was my first thought. And my second thought, which was way stronger than my first, was I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. I don't <laughs> want anything to do with that. And I didn't, I didn't make a note of it. I, didn't, I couldn't find that account again if my life depended on it. And I proceeded to try and forget it. And those youngsters never quite left me. And I was I was haunted by the situation they found themselves in, which was to, to be left alone before those changes come over them as they move into adolescence, and then to have to muddle forward with no resources and no one to turn to and try to understand how they were supposed to be in the world as the different people they were becoming. So I... I uh, avoided it for years and years and years and years, but finally, uh, a couple of years ago, sat down and tried. I took a shot at trying to tell a story like theirs,
1: and have done brilliantly. It has to be said. We'll talk about uh, the plot of that book in just a moment, Emma. I'm interested if there was a similar sort of archival story that you had read that that gave you the inspiration for your story in *The Pull of the Stars*.
2: No, I wish I could claim that, but it started with an article in The Economist magazine. You know, <laughs> so often people think novelists are extraordinarily original in their researches, and so often we're drawing on the work of other historians or journalists. You know, it's a it's a continuous feedback loop, all of us who write and publish in any form. So I'm deeply grateful to that anonymous journalist, because The Economist doesn't even use bylines. No, I read an article about the um, anniversary, the centenary of the uh, flu pandemic, and of course I'd known about the flu pandemic but never paid any really close attention and I just was haunted by the atmosphere the idea of this really busy modern world suddenly kind of grinding to a halt and um, because people were so afraid of this this flu that could kill you literally in a matter of hours or slowly off, over many weeks or you could have a really mild case or you could have just some mystery symptom like um, your sense of smell going so um Uh, when I when I did the initial research on my phone, because I'd accidentally left my computer at home and I was away for the weekend at a literary festival without my computer. So on my phone, I, I speed read everything I could find about the great flu. And what jumped out at me was a tiny little fact that women in very late pregnancy or just after birth were particularly liable to catch it and have horrible side effects. And I found myself thinking, where did they put them? And I still haven't answered this question. I found no reference to special maternity quarantine wards, but there must have been somewhere that you would put a woman to give birth without infecting other birthing women with the flu. So I imagined a little, you know, makeshift three-person ward, and then I thought you would have one nurse in charge of that ward, and who would she be? So the whole thing began with that question.
1: Right. And the book is set over just a few days, which I think gives it a real sort of intensity as well. Was that, was that your intention?
2: absolutely three days and um it's set over halloween which is a slightly you know dark and (laughs) carnivalesque atmosphere anyway and it's set in the last month of the war and um it was it was such an interesting time they were just about to give the vote to women over 30 for the first time, women of property. And um, Ireland was going through havoc those years as well. So that's one reason I said it in Ireland when really I could have said it anywhere. Um, but Ireland, you know, was 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 moving in just a couple of years from most people being loyal to the king to most people saying, actually, we're going to vote Sinn vain. we want our own government. So, as we've seen with, say, the Black Lives Matter protests, and um, I think times of, of um, upheaval and fear and even pandemic can lead to massive social change because it, it sort of press a reset button. and gives everyone a chance to think: what society is is it that we want to to get up and running again?
1: Yeah. Do you think that there will be a sort of uh, slew? Is the wrong word, but do you think there will be? some sort of Covid novels published after this pandemic?
2: Well, there'd certainly be some, yes. And memoirs, I would imagine. I think probably people will have a real appetite for, you know, accounts of, of the, the trenches were. You know, so just after you see after something like World War One, I, I think there will be a lot of, you know, doctors and nurses and so on talking about what it was like to go through the gruelling, um, not just physical and mental, but ethical ringer of having to make those decisions you know already i've i've been I've been gripped by articles from Italy about doctors deciding who to give the ventilators to
1: gosh yeah that's <laughs> i think there's more stories like that to come you're you're certainly right um michael the the um book is an explanation of the bond between siblings, as you've already alluded to having siblings, although they're all of the same sex um did it Did it help sort of get into the mindset of of that that sibling bond for you for writing it
3: well I, I guess to a certain extent, but the the experience that those children have in the novel is so far outside my own experience that it's it felt like I was entering a world completely unlike my own in many ways and I, I have to admit i'm happy I don't have a sister uh, because a, a couple of people have come up to me. And asked me directly, do I have a sister? And I said, no. And they said, good, because I've just read your book. So I'm glad not to have that (laughs) That comparison at all. But um, I think what I wanted, uh, the only other bit of information in that account from the clergyman that I didn't mention was that being a clergyman, of course, he went after those youngsters and started telling them what an awful thing they had done and how sinful it was. And the brother eventually drove the clergyman away with a rifle. And I knew when I started writing this book that what I wanted to do was to write a book that did the exact opposite of what the clergyman did. And I wanted to write a book that at the end of it, a reader would come away feeling not no sense of judgment, but uh, some sense of how difficult the circumstances they found themselves in were and how reasonable the decisions and choices they made were, even when they were not good for them. So for me, the the book I decided was going to be a love story. And it's, it's a novel about two children left in unbelievably difficult circumstances and what enables them to survive those circumstances, the reason they get through it the reason they get up every day and go through this incredible slog that survival at the turn of the 18th century was in Newfoundland was because of their love for the other person and their sense that they want the other person to survive and they're willing to do anything to make that happen.
1: Because, yeah, it it is a story of survival, but it is also ultimately a story of, of love, isn't it, and that bond?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I never, I mean, <laughs> the reason I didn't want to write this book to start with is because... I didn't want to write a book about incest. And this is not a book about it. That's one of the threads that finds its way into the story of these two youngsters. But it's only one of many threads. And it's about their relationship in totality, which is so many other things. And so many other things in their relationship are far more important than that one thread.
1: Can you tell us what an outport is?
3: Well, I don't know where the term came from, but an outport is any community in Newfoundland that is not the capital city of St. John's. So it's uh, (laughs) St. John's is town. So if you're going to town, you're going to St. John's and every other community is an outport. So a port out from the capital city. So that's an outport is just a fishing community that isn't the
1: capital. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm fascinated by Canada. I've never been but it's on, on that big old list of places I must go. And I think one of the reasons I haven't been is because I feel I need to have, you know, three or four weeks to, to go and explore it properly. And as I have two authors who now live in Canada, I just wondered if you found it, a, you know, if you had sort of great inspiration from it as a place, but also if you had specific places that you liked to go to write. Emma, you obviously moved to Canada as opposed to being born there. So let's start with you. Do do you have a do do you feel that it gives you that 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 inspiration and that you're able to you know get really creative there?
2: It's funny uh, for me. I... The part of Canada I've moved to, London, Ontario, it's a very pleasant city. I don't find it particularly inspiring. I I haven't tended to set things here, but Canada as a whole, I feel, has given me permission. You might contest this, but I, I feel Canadian identity compared to, say, Irish identity is very broad. And encompassing and, and multicultural, and and it's made of bits, you know, like Newfoundland only joined in the middle of the 20th century, for instance. So we're, we're an assemblage. So there's no incredibly strong, unified sense of what it is to be Canadian. And for newcomers or blow ins like myself, that means there's room for us in the culture. And also, I found because it's a, I don't want to over idealize it here, but compared with Ireland, it felt like such a progressive society. And particularly, you know, if you're in a same sex relationship with kids, you know, you want to be able to raise those kids. Without feeling that pressure of, say, Catholic conservatism coming in on you, so for me, Canada is a place where I've been able to get on with my life and get on with my writing, with none of that sense of, you know, a lid pressing down on my mind. So I'd say it's been hugely permissive for me, hugely encouraging.
1: And uh, Michael, you were you were born there, weren't you? You were born in. I, I was born in Newfoundland,
3: yeah, yeah. So I'm. I, I lived in Ontario for about thirteen years. Most Newfoundlanders do leave for some portion of their life. But it, there's a really strong pull back to home. So I've been home now for about 20 years. And, and Newfoundland is a, a place apart. And I love that notion that Emma just mentioned of Canada as an assemblage. I, yeah. I, I think that's absolutely true. And Newfoundland is the, the most recent part of that assemblage. And it's a world unto itself in many ways. You know, it was, uh, because it's an island in the middle of the North Atlantic, it's culturally and linguistically and uh, genetically um, unlike anywhere else in the world, and I- I've spent my entire life writing about it uh, in an attempt to get that that N factor, as uh, a local uh, writer calls it, the Newfoundland factor down on paper, <laughs> because it it there is something different about the people here there's something about Mm. the way people's dependence on the natural world and the absolutely vicious and unpredictable nature of that natural world has created a particular character and that's really what I've always been interested in trying to write about.
1: Yeah I just think it's so interesting and and hearing you talk about where you live and you know looking at inter outports and just the, the real geography of what Canada can offer but in particular Newfoundland, it just feels like the sort of place one would want to go, if you know, to write. <laughs> it's almost like that's where you'd want to go and sit for a few weeks and immerse yourself and, you know, write that novel. Yeah, but well, there's, having... there's,
3: there's lots of isolated spots, so there's lots of quiet and privacy if that's what you want. And the landscape is spectacular and often terrifying.
1: Well it's time for the book off now and as I said this is where each of you is going to tell us about a book that you love and that you think we should all read. Um, You're going to get three minutes each to do so and you don't have to use those three minutes if you don't want to but if you go over the three I am going to be cutting you down in your prime either via the uh, bicycle horn or... uh school bell um before we get to those two books um i've been enjoying asking my guests what they've been reading recently and if anything sort of stood out uh, some authors have been in the throes of you know writing so actually what they've been reading is 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 research materials but it's just interesting to know what's been on the to be read pile um over the last couple of months so emma have you uh, read anything lately that you've really enjoyed
2: Sure, I wouldn't have read it except that I, I still read aloud to my 13-year-old. I'm amazed she lets me. So we've been reading the, the series by Scott Westerfeld, a young adult dystopian series, the pretties, specials, the extras, the uglies, riveting stuff and full of really interesting social commentary on our world. And I would never have read it because it's, you know, it's branded YA. So it's, it's great to read with somebody else sometimes because you're pulled outside your usual habits.
1: Mm. Although I have to say, I am a huge YA fan in general um obviously not not just because it's YA means that it's it's great but I love delving into you know some of the YA that's out there because it's as it's so imaginative and it really sort of takes you into a different world it's there's some really great stuff and I'm sure now that you've discovered these books you know you you might find others along the way
2: yeah, and the Hunger Games was a was another sort of breakthrough moment for me because I realized actually this has, has kind of long roots in roots in, in myth and legend and so on. And sometimes you can be, you know, misled by the, the kind of very modern surface of these books and not realize that, you know, they, they have very deep roots.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And what about you, Michael? Have you been reading recently?
3: Um, I have I've actually been reading a, a lot of poetry recently, which uh is something I I did a lot of earlier in my life and did more sporadically as as I've gotten older but there's something about the uh the covid lockdown that um poetry seems to speak to somehow and uh and in particular I've been reading uh Thomas Tranströmer the Swedish poet uh who I read years ago and liked but wasn't really taken with but just recently I've his his stuff just there's a a brilliant simplicity to his stuff and a depth to it and a loneliness to it as well. It's about the sort of the wonder of human consciousness in the world, but the loneliness of human consciousness in the world as well. And that seems perfect for the moment that most of us are living through, it seems.
1: <laughs> Has it been a, a time to write poetry as well? Because I know that you've written before.
3: Yeah, I have, I have been sort of muddling away at it. And, and that again, that feels like the time, it feels like the right form for them for the moment or for my own personal moment. So I've really uh, been grateful to have that to turn to.
1: Well, let's get to the book off then and find out first of all, which books you are putting forward. So Emma, which book are you putting up for the book off today?
2: I'm going to go for Hanya Yanagihara's book, A Little
1: Life. Oh, A Little Life, but not a little book. Fantastic. And Michael, what are you putting forward? Uh, I'm going with Herman Melville's Moby Dick. (laughs) Not messing about. (laughs) No, no. I like a challenge. (laughs) Um, So we need to decide who goes first and who goes second. Emma, I'll let you make that decision. Would you like... To go first and get it over with, or do you want to see what Yeah, I'm you're going up to go against?
2: get it over with because if Michael is incredibly eloquent about Melville for three minutes, I'm just going to be crushed. I'm going to pretend that my software is glitching. This is what my 13 <laughs> year old does. If she's asked an awkward question by a teacher during remote schooling, she pretends to glitch. You know, she sits there and twitches. <laughs> so I'm going to get mine over with.
3: Well, let's, I mean, I might not be here when you're done, Emma. So I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, Michael, that means you get the choice of weapon for how you'd like to be um, rudely uh, cut down when we reach the three minutes. So would you like the uh, school bell or the bicycle horn? Well, to me, that's a clown horn.
3: And I I definitely want the clown horn.
1: You're going to get the clown horn. okay? Um, so, Emma, it's it's over to you. I'm going to put three minutes on the clock. As I said, you don't have to use them all. But once you reach your three minute mark. I'll be uh, ringing you out with the school bell. Over to you, uninterrupted, to tell us about A Little Life.
2: A Little Life is, yes, ironically named. Um, I think in my copy, this novel is 730 pages long. And all I can say is that several springs ago, it's now a couple of years since I read it, it was published in uh, 2015 when it was shortlisted for The Man Booker, I found myself waking up early and getting out of bed to read this book. And although I'm an enthusiastic reader, I'm usually perfectly content to read a book once I'm already up for the day, or even later in the day. But but this book, I would wake up and fret over the characters. And I emphasize fret because... It's in no way an easy read, this book. Um, just as many people have tossed Moby Dick aside over the centuries, you know, I know many people who couldn't handle this book because it is so extreme in what it asks of you as a reader, but that's why I would make a case for it. Um, a Little Life starts out in a way that might feel like it's going to be this enjoyable, leisurely read, the kind of book we've all read before, because it's about the friendship of four college friends who are now all living in Manhattan. An artist, um, an architect, an actor, and a lawyer they're all men um one is biracial one is black one is white we're not told about the other and you think at first oh yes this would be a sort of you know well-observed and interesting social novel about four college friends and you might think of say uh, donna tart um and then it takes on this weird direction because one of them, the the lawyer, Jude, um, who's very brilliant and a great singer and makes great pastries and so on, he had not just a traumatic childhood, but the most appallingly traumatic upbringing. And the novel really starts to follow his story, and in particular, to look at how he is not recovering. He is not fixed, and I'm I'm well aware, like many novelists, that you know, fiction is so often consolatory. You know, we, we tell sad stories and then we show how the people get over them. But in this case, the novel is all about his lifelong damage, and I don't quite know how Hanya Yanahara managed to make this so compulsively interesting to me. But she she makes care so much about Jude, and he's surrounded by good friends. There's even a, an, an older couple in his life who sort of adopt him as an adult. He, there's there's kindness. There's love in his life and yet nothing can ever quite fix him because he was so damaged and um you know this isn't something I'd usually seek out but she somehow makes me care so much about him and about his friends and about the the painful paradox that they can't make up to him for all he's lost and for all he's suffered and um I found that the novel actually made me Think about what fiction does and what's going on in our in our curiosity about these people. I sometimes felt guilty for caring this much and for wanting to know so much about what he went through, but I couldn't stop. It was absolutely compulsive reading, and I don't think I'll ever forget it.
1: Wow, fantastic. You uh, you brought that in with seven seconds to spare, Emma, like a pro. I had a timer on. <laughs> there we go, there's my timer. You shouldn't have admitted that. You should have. <laughs> I have no sense of timing. I
2: would have gone on for hours otherwise.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous pitch. Uh, And what a book. And we'll come back and talk about that very shortly. But uh, have a breather now, Emma Uh, and Michael, you've got to step up to the plate here. So I'm putting three minutes back on our clock for you uh, to tell us about Moby Dick. Okay. well, let's be honest
3: off the top here. I know you don't want to read this book. You don't. In fact, I didn't want to read the book before I read it. And there are lots of good reasons for that. Um, Melville's story of the monomaniacal Captain Ahab leading a crew on a doomed expedition to exact revenge on the white whale that chewed off his leg on a previous voyage, for starters, like a little life, is a doorstopper. It's several hundred pages longer than more sensibly proportioned books. And Melville seems not to know or care what he's doing. Half the time. Uh, the book is complex and meandering. It's full of arcane illusions. There are multiple digressions that read more like essays on natural history than fiction. Early on in the book, especially, characters are introduced that just disappear without explanation, and it's almost like Melville lost interest, or he just simply forgot that he mentioned them, which gives it a bit of a first draft feel in places. I mean, didn't the guy bother to reread his own damn book before he published it? And to top that off, the book is meant to be a celebration of what Melville refers to as the heroic whaling industry. And he does not spare us any details of the barbarity of the hunt. And yet, I'm eternally grateful to have been pressured into reading this magnificent, provoking, infuriating creation. The central characters and the central storyline are so elemental and elastic, they seem ready-made for any age, including our own. Ahab's all-consuming pursuit of the white whale can be read as an allegory for all sorts of modern ailments. For example, the appeal and rise of authoritarian leaders across the world at the moment. Or the ways that a charismatic figure can infect otherwise rational people with their own grievances and prejudices. The destructive force of toxic masculinity. The futility of holding a grudge. And the book is an adventure story. It's chock full of amazing set pieces that manage to be harrowing, thrilling, hilarious. It's completely compelling when it isn't drifting off into barely related tangents. But the most overwhelming sense I was left with when I read this book was of the wonder and mystery of the natural world and its meditations on the transcendent marvels of the whale and of the ocean itself. They are among the most beautifully reverential and uplifting writing I have ever encountered. In fact, it reads like a nascent call to arms for the modern environmental movement. And that seems completely antithetical to the equally compelling descriptions that Melville gives us of the slaughtering and butchering of the whale hunt. And here, I think, in some way that I can't really articulate, is the genius of Moby Dick. It's that that reverence and that barbarism sail hand in hand through the novel, as it does in the human heart. It's unlike anything written before or since. Read this book.
1: (laughs) I almost got in there. I almost got in there. (laughs) you 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 were you know I could see you were just bringing it home a couple of seconds to go there Ah, well done Michael um uh, you have a little breather um Emma I want to talk about A Little Life because it's a book I have read um I read it for the Man Booker Prize when it was shortlisted and um everything you were saying there I, I sort of agree with and for those that haven't read it I know that to get to look at a book that's 730 pages long and to be told <laughs> it's it's pretty bleak doesn't necessarily make you want to read it but you saying that you actually woke up early because you wanted to read this book is amazing to me because it makes me feel god how how passionately you must you must have felt about it and about Jude and how amazing her storytelling is to have made you want to get up and just be with it again, you know?
2: Also, it's not consistently bleak. It's more like, you know, for instance, Jude has all sorts of talents. Lots of things come easily to him. He's got this sparkling set of friends. He's got lovely people in his life. So there are all these, you know, quite light and enjoyable and pleasure filled moments and then you get a flashback to one of the many horrifying things that happened in his childhood or you know a scene that that reveals the ways in which um he's for instance hurting himself still nowadays because he can't he can't let his old pains go. So so there's an astonishing contrast. You're kind of hurtled into the abyss and then pulled up again. And there's such a poignancy to the portrayal of friendship in the novel. Um, you know, she's, she's far more romantic about friendship than about romantic relationships. And she talks about friendship as this little miracle. Um, and one of the most moving things I found was that um, as a reader, you're kind of caught up in the same dilemma as Jude's friends, that um, they really want to know what happened to him. And yet they know it's crass to ask, but they can't help but be curious and, and, you know, desperate to know what happened to him. And so as a reader, I found myself thinking, oh, tell me more about what happened with that evil priest. And then I feel bad about that. And it made me realize the the elements of voyeurism and almost taking pleasure in the pain of others that are part of the reading experience. So this book actually made me self conscious about what's going on in me as a reader. So it comments on itself. It's not it's not a sort of clever trick experience. You feel like you're one of Jude's friends that you desperately care about him, but also maybe there's something suspect in how you want to know all the dreadful details.
1: Yeah. It really is, it's a a wonderful novel. And Michael, I mean, your pitch (laughs) was (laughs) so so brilliant because you instantly had me hooked by the fact that you you started by saying, I know you don't want to read this book and I didn't either. Because it is, you know, it is a doorstop. Again, we're talking about 730-odd pages uh, for a little life. But, you know, this is a... Is a big old beast as well. (laughs) This this idea that it's got a first draft feel to it, uh, meandering. It's a bizarre
3: creature. Uh, I mean it, and then
1: you 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 sort of speak so love that you know after all that you then say, well, actually, I feel really grateful to have read it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I've ever read a book where I've had so many contradictory responses. You know, to be so. Uh, Appalled and amazed, and in awe, and bored out of my mind, and just (laughs) completely (laughs) unable to put the book down. Uh, It, it just there, there has never I have never experienced a book where I've gone through that cycle over and over and over again. And it is, I mean, it's a singular thing. I I reread some Virginia Woolf recently, and I was amazed by how contemporary it felt and how so much of what is being written now is doing the same things that Wolf did. And, uh, and I think that's a testament to how incredibly good she was and how innovative she was. Whereas with, with a book like uh, Moby Dick, there, there are no other Moby Dicks, and nobody's trying to write another Moby Dick because you can't do it. It is a singular thing, and warts and all, it was one of the most incredible reading experiences of my life.
1: Well, I am completely taken with both of your pictures. Um, and having read Hanya Yanagihara's book, I I know how wonderful it is. So I'm going to do something uh, a little bit different here. We don't, I wouldn't usually do this, but because of the strength of both these books and and the way you've put them forward, I'm going to award two first prizes and the, the prize the prize for the you must read book is going to go to a little life and the prize for the best pitch is going to go to Moby Dick okay um because I think you you did such an amazing job of uh, of making me really want to pick up that book now to find out what the hell is going on and Emma I think you did uh, a little life very proud and for anyone who hasn't read that I would also wholeheartedly recommend it. So um both absolutely brilliant guys and I think that's the fair the fair outcome. They should do that with the bookers. Yes maybe they should. Yeah. <laughs> I'll t- I'll suggest it to them for this year. The Pull of the Stars by Emma Donoghue is published by Picador. It's out now, as is The Innocents by Michael Crummy, which is published by No Exit Press. And they're both really, really great reads with beautiful front covers. Uh, Never judge a book by its cover, but in this case you can um so we suggest finding a space on your bookshelves so that you can slot these two books in thank you all for listening and i hope you enjoyed our latest episode if you're listening via itunes or apple podcasts on your iphone do take a moment to rate and review our podcast it's really quick very easy and it's hugely appreciated and if you're new to us or a new listener do follow us on the social medias we are at oh do and do say hello Emma, Michael, what an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast and to be connected across the ocean um, and spend some time with you. Thank you both for your recommendations and thanks very much for telling us about your latest books.
2: It's been lovely. Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you.